Well, we're in a series titled Unusual, and so, uh, you know, I hope that what happens from here on out is not normal, because that's not what we're hoping for this morning. We're looking for unusual, and if you just jumped in with us, it's simply this, that we, we serve and worship an unusual and amazing God. Last week, we, I was so excited walking out last week, just thinking about how great God is and how powerful he is, we are worshiping today the God who made the universe out of nothing. And that's like almost like scientific fact right now because dark matter, dark energy, the hot topic of astronomy and physics, and they're saying most of the universe is invisible. And I'm thinking exactly that's what Hebrews said when it said God made what is visible out of what is invisible. So hello, now science is catching up with God. That's what we're always all doing, isn't it? We're always all catching up with a great and powerful Powerful and awesome God. And if he is awesome, and if he is powerful, and if he does things in an unusual way, the way he shows grace to us, totally unusual, the way he forgave us, completely unusual, the way he wiped our debt away when we had offended him, not normal, the way he created, not normal, his beauty, not normal, his wisdom, not normal, his ways, not normal, not ordinary, nothing about God is ordinary. And so if we're his people, and we're those who come to know him personally, and we're his followers, then guess what? Our lives shouldn't be ordinary. Can we just have an amen for that, just at 11 o'clock in the morning, maybe even a little clap or something for our lives shouldn't be ordinary. What we don't want to do is bore the world. Hang around with me, because my life is like pretty boring. What you're saying is, my God is totally a dud. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that he's boring. I'm just saying I'm boring. Oh, so you were made in his image, bought with a price, filled with his spirit, called by his name, invited into his family, given a gift, given a place in the story, given a word of God that's living and powerful, and you're boring, but it's okay. He's not boring. No, whatever we're saying about him to the world is the message that we're broadcasting, and, and it's kind of like worship, to be really honest with you. Sometimes you walk in church. I think the sin of the world, the sin of the world is boring church, because boring church says to the world what? That God is boring, and I think God's at a lot of churches going, hey, uh, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. Those people out there, that's not me. Don't think about me when you think about them. Those people sitting on their hands, standing there, mm that's not me. That's not me. That's them. That's not me. That's them. That's, well, they're at your church. No, that's not my church. That's their church. If you're at my church, oh my goodness, you'd hear cymbals clanging. You'd hear the brass piping up. You'd hear an angel choir singing. It would blow you out the back door. And then I would appear, and I'd be so radiant in splendor and beauty, and then I'd crack a joke, and you'd go, I don't know. God's funny, too. This is crazy. How can it be awesome and funny? And then I'd tell you things that would blow your mind. And I would offer you promises that would help you become the very best that you could possibly be on earth and in eternity. And there's nothing boring about that. And if our lives don't reflect that, it just means there's time for us still, there's time for me still to close the gap between ordinary life on planet earth and an extraordinary, unusual God who's always pulling us up towards him. And the story today is about unusual courage 
an unusual confidence, and it happens in the most interesting of places. It's the Old Testament story of the book of Daniel, and if you have scripture, it's pretty much smack in the middle of the Old Testament. And the book of Daniel takes us back. I know. When I say Daniel, what do you think about? What's the first thought that comes to your mind when I say Daniel? Say it out loud. I say Daniel, you say what? Lion's Den. Everybody knows about the lion's den. You don't have to be a believer in God to know about the lion's den. Everybody knows that Daniel went in the lion's den. You may not know why or how or what happened or what kind of lions they were, but you know he went in the lion's den, right? Anything else that comes to your mind when you think about Daniel? When I think about Daniel, I think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three dudes who went where? In the fiery furnace. Come on, if you don't like Daniel, then you just don't, you, you, I don't know what you're reading, you know? Michael Crichton, I don't know, he got nothing on Daniel, man. We got a fiery furnace, we got a lion's den, and it all happened in Babylon. It happened in Babylon. Some of you don't know anything about Babylon, but David Gray, and, and that's the old timers here, but uh, you're like, that takes me back. Yeah, Babylon. Babylon, which kind of even now sort of has the capstone meaning of a place of excess, a place of sensuality, a place where all the, the fleshly stuff is running at 100%, 100% high octane, right? And that's exactly what Babylon was all about. Babylon's a place. So let me just take us there if I can. Babylon is in present-day Iraq. About 80 kilometers or so south of Baghdad, that's where Babylon was. It was like the hub of Mesopotamia for hundreds of years and centuries. It was a place of power, and it was the cultural hub of the day. The literal word of Babylon early on was Babylon, and Babylon meant the gateway of the gods or the city of the gods, the place or the palace of the gods, and culturally it was at the top of the heap. It would sort of be like taking Wall Street, Harvard, Hollywood, and Vegas and rolling them all into one place. You got Babylon. And in Babylon, as a backdrop of a place where there were a multitude of gods, phenomenal temples built, incredible excess and beauty, in fact, the character we're going to look at today who's ruling Babylon at part of our story, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, he's a guy credited for actually building the hanging gardens of Babylon, which were one of the seven wonders of the world in his time. So this, this place was hopping. I mean, this place was cruising. We're talking about 600 BC. Babylon was on the map. And if you were anybody doing anything of influence you were in Babylon, and you were the cream of the crop. They had a gate there called the Istar Gate, and you can see a replica of it now. It's some kind of museum they built in Germany. And I mean, you see the beautiful stonework and the size and the expanse of this thing, it all blue stone leading into the city of Babylon, a place that was godless, that was all about the power of man, that was all about the wisdom of people and about pleasure with no limit in Babylon. God said, I want to do an unusual thing and I want to prove that I'm an unusual God. The story unfolds in the very beginning, chapter one, verse one. Check it out. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Now, Judah was one of the 
one of the two, uh, two lungs of the people of God. So we're talking about down in Israel, right? You got Judah over here, uh, the people of God, led by a king that's been put there by God. And so you got a rock over here, and you got the sort of like Judah, Israel over here. So they, there's a little bit of a, a war going on here. Isn't that weird how that happened? In that year, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, into Babylon's hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. They got the little plates with the felt in the middle of them. And more importantly, they got important things. They got goblets from the altar. They got some of the serving pieces from the altar. And off they went to Babylon. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now, can I just, just say as a, as a parenthesis here, because this is a theme throughout scripture, whenever you as a non-God-fearing, small G-God-worshipping person get into a place of authority and you take from the big G-God his rightful place of worship, and you try to subject that in any way to your power, you are on a short fuse that's going to blow you up. And that's what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. You don't ever go into the house of the living God, the big G God, the I created the universe out of nothing God, and say, hey, I just happen to be in a place of power right now, so I'm going to take all your sacred articles out of your temple, and worse than that, I'm going to bring them into the temple of my God. Now, this God, of course, is going to be made by man's hands. It's going to be some statue, some bronze thing, some gold thing, some, some idol-looking thing that I made and set up as a God, and I'm going to take your things and put them in here with my things. Same thing as the Ark of the Covenant we talked about a while back, going into the God of the Philistines. That was a bad idea from the start. But Nebuchadnezzar knows no less. He's in power, you see. He's got his hand on the throttle. He's calling the shots. He's making the decisions. He's got the throne. And I say that today because there are people all over this city who are thinking, I'm in charge. I have the power. I'm making the decisions here. And little do they know that they're in the hands of a big G God. So verse three, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, I'm glad I didn't get that name, that's a cool name, maybe they called him Ash for short, Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Verse six, among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. 
and to Ezra Abednego. Now, there are going to be some themes today that I think God wants to lift up for us, and I couldn't be more excited about sharing this message today because I think sometimes when, when we come into worship or come into church, there's always this divide in our minds between the sacred and the secular. There are always those people that serve God, and then there's the rest of us, right? There's always the pastor and the preacher and the worship leader and the missionary and the church planner and the Bible translator, and then there's everybody else. I, I have my own IT business. I work as a mechanic. I have a lawn service, and that's just all the other people in the world, and so it's all the God's people and all the other people. I want to tell you, today's message is for all the other people. So if you're one of all the other people, congratulations. I want you to know God has you right in the crosshairs today, and he's breathing hope on you, on all of us, really, because there is no divide, but especially you. And there's several principles I want us to hold on to, and the first one is this, that God, an unusual God, is over the affairs of our lives. That's number one. An unusual God is over the affairs of our lives. So yes, we talked last week about how God is great and powerful and mighty to save. I want you to know today that the God who is great and powerful and mighty to save is over the affairs of of your lives. In other words, God wasn't sleeping when all this went down. In fact, the most amazing phrase here that I, I sort of underlined it, that I don't think most people underline, it says in verse two, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. In other words, God was saying about Judah, hey, Here's one of those times where you've forsaken me, and so as part of forsaking me, there's going to be a little extra turn in the journey here so that we can all come back together again, and now you're going on that journey, and that journey's going to take you to Babylon. So the way that Daniel and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to use their Babylonian names, the way they got to Babylon was God put them in Babylon. So you're not where you are today because someone bought your company. Well, they sold our company, and these other people bought us, and these jokers came in from Cleveland, and you know, blah, 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 and that's kind of what's going on with us right now. No, it is not what's going on with you right now. God is what's going on with you right now, and you have an unusual God, and he's over the affairs of your life. Well, my dad got transferred, and so now here I am in a new middle school, and I just got stuck in a new middle school because my dad's job and blah, 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 and now I'm this place, and that's kind of what's, what's going down. That is not what's going down. You did not just get stuck in a new middle school. An unusual God is sovereign over the affairs of your life, and he looked at you and said, I need you in that middle school, so here's how I'm going to get you in that middle school. Your dad's going to get a job transfer, but that's not about your dad. It might be more about you going to a new middle school than about your dad getting a new job. God is at work. So here, hear me out on this. As it comes to our circumstances, where we work, where we study, how things work out, we are not victims of circumstance. And you're going to see that play out in this story. Daniel never once, do I see in this story, said, well, man, this is terrible. Jehoiakim, man, he couldn't pull it off. We got defeated. The Babylonians came in. They looked at me and said, hey, you look like a good leader and a smart guy, so we're taking you off to Babylon. So here I am in Babylon. Look at this, man. I'm just in Babylon. He never somehow lost sight of the fact that he had an unusual God. And yeah, I'm in Babylon. I don't like Babylon. Yes, I'm in Mesopotamia. I'd rather be in Jerusalem, but God is at work in my life. 
It's, it's sort of a, a side issue today, but I, I just want to say it so that some of you won't look at me like, well, that's nice of you to say that, Louie. I'm sure you've been to seminary and have some degrees in Bible study and, and knowledge, and I'm sure you pray all day and whatever, whatever, but we live in the real world, okay? I know that. You know, one of the things we do around here is we have a record label because we believe in artists, and we've been doing it for over 10 years Guys like David Crowder Band, Matt Redmond, Charlie Hall, Passion Albums, Christy Christian, Chris Tomlin. And, when, and I'm telling you, in a, in a down music economy, God has put favor on our label. We are partners with one of the biggest music labels in the world, has recently been bought, that all fell apart, went to litigation with Citibank in New York. Now Citibank has our label on the auction block and bidders are coming in. And by the end of the year, we will be sold again. Us. Oh, yeah, we work with EMI Christian Music Group out of Nashville, Tennessee, but they're a part of EMI Music. You've heard of it, Abbey Road Studio. And we're on the block. And in a few months, we'll be working with some people, possibly, that we don't know who they are right now. And we did that once before with Terra Firma. You can read about it in the newspaper. And it might not be the last time because that's the way life works, isn't it? But I'm telling you, there will never be a day where we will sit idly by and say, oh my goodness, city has us for sale and we're gonna be bought by whoever, whoever, whoever. We are in the hands of an unusual God. He supersedes everything that happens on earth and he is in charge of our lives. He's in charge of our lives and he's in charge of your life. And wherever you are, it could just be that God Put you there. Well, I don't like it. You don't have to like it. But it helps if you recognize that God is in charge of you. You might just be a prisoner in Babylon today, and God may be looking for somebody unusual to do something phenomenal for his glory. The second thing I want you to see is that these cats, these boys of Babylon, were excellent in every way. And I want us to celebrate that today. And I'm just going to come right out and say it. We have to get past the time where Christians are looked like at the second best at everything there is because we're Christians. Come on. I hear you. <clears throat> Keep coming. Keep coming. Thank you. Thank you. We, we have to get past that. Here's what it says. Look, look at what it says when it, it says, verse four. They found from the royal family and nobility, verse four, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. In other words, these guys led with their conduct and their excellence followed by their character in time, and then followed later in time by their faith and devotion to God. But they weren't picked based on their faith and devotion to God. They were picked on their excellence, their aptitude, their ability to learn, their, their skill level. And we must come to the place where we embrace this idea that the way we're going to see change come to the world is by leading it by people knowing that we're the best of the best of the best. 
Yeah, hang around, you're gonna get my conduct. And hang around a little bit longer, you're gonna get my faith and devotion to God. But I'm not leading with my faith and devotion to God. I'm not walking in and go, you should buy my product because I'm a Christian. The Christian Yellow Pages, I don't know, maybe you're in it, and that's fine, that's great, and I don't wanna step on anybody's toes today, but it is 11 o'clock in the morning, and maybe it could happen, I don't know. But the Christian Yellow Pages is great if all the people in the Christian Yellow Pages are really good at what they do, because I don't want a Christian plumber to come to my house who can't plumb as good as a non-Christian plumber. I'll take the non-Christian plumber, thank you very much, who can actually fix the toilet. (laughs) That's who I want. I don't wanna stand in the hallway and go, I heard you know Chris Tomlin. I heard you know Chris Tomlin. My, my daughter loves Chris Tomlin. My toilet, bro, my toilet's leaking. See, this stuff's going down the hall right here. I know. And so, man, we, we were at that last concert, that deal, and it was fantastic. Oh, praise the Lord. It was so, man, dude, my toilet is running down the hall. I'd rather have the guy coming and going, what's your problem? But to, oh, your toilet's running down the hall. Jimmy, get the thing. His toilet's running down the hall. You know, and they start working on the toilet. I'd really rather have a guy that comes in, actually doesn't have grease on his shoes, and walks in and goes, hi, I'd just like to say right up front, my name's Ed, and I'm, I'm gonna do a fantastic job here, and we'll be out of your house in about an hour, and you won't have to call us back again, because that's the way we treat what we do. I don't care at that point who he is or where he came from. I want that guy, and you do too. You're gonna lead with excellence. You wanna back that up with character, because I don't want a guy who comes into my house and says, man, I'm the best toilet guy there is, fixes my toilet in like 18 seconds, and then while I'm turned around, steals something off the bookshelf. I don't want that guy. I want a guy who's excellent. I want it to be backed up with character, and then our opportunity is to be able to come behind that and say, and the reason for all that excellence, and the reason that it's all undergirded with character is because of faith and devotion to God. People typically are more ready to hear about faith and devotion to God when it's coming through the lens of excellence and been backed up with character than they are when it's the leading story. Hello, I'm a Christian. They're like, great, you're terrible at your job, and you're attitude stinks. But I'm glad you're a Christian. Congratulations for that. I'd love to go to the church you go to. It must be some kind of place. People are being transformed left and right. I'll just sleep in again this weekend. Thank you very much. People want to see excellence. And people need to have it backed up by character. And when those two things happen, there's hardly ever a moment where somebody says, I don't want to hear about your faith. Now, there are moments, and there's about to be one right here. But unusual God, he breeds unusual people and an unusual attitude that causes excellence and conduct and faith to be the calling card of our life. I hope that we become in time This church becomes in time a haven for people who are the very best leaders in every part of culture. If you're into nuclear, nuclear fusion, I hope you find a home here. If you're inventing some brand new technology that's gonna revolutionize life, I hope you're at home here. If you wanna lead government, I hope you're at home here. If you wanna charge out in the arts, I hope that you'll be at home here. And we don't wanna turn you in necessarily to a church planner. We wanna inspire you to be whatever else it is that God's gifted you to do. 
Because everybody in this house today can be excellent at something. You might not can be excellent at the thing you're, do, thing you're doing right now. You might be in one of those in-between places in life where you're doing it because it needs to be done or someone called on you or it's the opportunity of the moment and it's maybe not the thing you're gonna excel at but you're gonna give your best. But there's something in you. There's something God has wired up in you that you can be excellent at and that's what he's calling for. The third principle is this, that it's possible to do it God's way and still succeed in life. I love this. And so look what happens in verse eight. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. You see, he came from, from Judah and in Judah, he, he didn't drink the best choice meats and the wine from the king's table. Apparently he was eating vegetables and drinking water. And that's the way God had called him to be. And so he says, now God has caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. So it's like, I don't really care what you do, but I'm in charge, I'm responsible, I've gotta make the decision. You gotta eat what the king said you're gonna eat. For three years, he's gonna train you, then he's gonna raise you up and put you in charge of Babylon, and he wants you to be the kind of person he wants you to be, and part of that is drinking the king's food and wine. So Daniel then said, verse 11, to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezra, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. See there, there's a proof in it as to what you're gonna see in us. So he agreed to this, tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. No kidding. So the guard took away their choice food and, gave, and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Let's hear it for the Daniel diet. <clears throat> no varsity on the Daniel diet, apparently, but it worked for them. And so look what happens in the next verse 17. These four young men, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set forth by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, the king, and talked with them. And he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every, check this out, in every matter of wisdom, not just Bible study, and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and all the enchanters in his whole kingdom. Wow. So what we would normally think is it's kind of gonna be an either or. So first we're in Babylon, then some joker shows up and says, hey, this is the way it's gonna work for you boys. This came down from the king. This is a new edict. You're gonna eat this. You're gonna do this. Here's the way it's all gonna work. And in time, you're gonna work your way to the king's service. And Daniel, could he had two choices right there. He could have said, hey, 
We're in Babylon. We didn't ask to be in Babylon. I mean, it looks like good wine and good food. It's the king's food. Let's just eat the king's food. He could have compromised right there. And you know why he could have compromised? Because he was in a tough spot, and he didn't like the circumstances, and he didn't choose it. And if God was so great in Jerusalem, how did he end up in Babylon? So I'm just going to compromise because God didn't come through for me. And I'm telling you, as humans, we understand that so much when something goes wrong, when something doesn't happen the way we thought it was going to happen, when pain or trials come, what? It just opens the door back to that temptation. We say, well, what the heck? God didn't come through anyway. I might as well just go back to Egypt. And somehow God's got to close the gap for us. And understanding that we never end up places just because of random circumstances, but we get put places because of God, and somehow it still pulls us up even when the bottom falls out. And we say, you know what? It's always been our way that we honored God with the way that He asked us to eat and drink. And it's worked for us all the way to now. And, and Daniel's not putting a lot of this in. Maybe it was, it was in between the verses and we don't get all the conversation, but I don't hear him saying, hey, look at us. We're, you picked us because we look awesome, right? The reason we look awesome is because of the Daniel diet. So he wants to be awesome? Keeps on the Daniel diet, bro. Hello. I don't see that. I just hear him saying in humility, um, look, we don't want to compromise. His other option was just to bail out. You know, to, to do the little pro, the God protest. Well, you just tell King Nebuchadnezzar and we're not eating it because we're Christians. Well, they weren't Christians yet, but you know. They could have just jumped out and said, we, we, we're, you just kick us out then. We don't want to be in the little king's training ground. We don't want to be in the little program anymore because we're not doing that. So he didn't compromise, which is what sometimes we want to do so quickly, and he didn't throw up this big, huge protest. He came up with a third path, and I love the third way. The third way, he thought it through, and he said, hey, I believe in God. I believe God's unusual. I believe you'll give God a chance. God will prove that he's unusual, so let's just give God a chance. And so he says to the official, would you give us 10 days of doing it our way, and then you decide, you look, you evaluate, you see what you think. And the official says, okay, I'll give you 10 days. It's kind of like when that moment comes. I'm not talking about abject someone asking you to do something immoral or illegal or to violate God's word. I'm talking about those sort of gray areas, like I want you to work on Sunday, or I need you to do this, or I need you to take that extra trip, or I need you to, you know, to, to be involved in this, that, or the other, and for you to say, you know what, that's gonna cause me to do this or that or the other, and so here's the way I'm gonna come back to my boss. Would you... Give me a month of not, and then you decide whether or not I'm doing a good enough job. You're like, well, then I'd have to like, tighten it up a little bit on the other times and get off Facebook and actually work a little bit more. Yes, you would. And then I would have to trust God every day, every single moment when I woke up, I said, God, we got 30 days here and I'm counting on you. Yes, you would. And then I would have to produce. Yes, you would. But is it possible 
that God could stand up to the test? Is it possible that God could say, I will honor that. I'll come through for you. I'll multiply the other hours because you asked to not work that one hour. I'll multiply the other influence you have because you didn't go to the strip club with the guys that came in from Illinois. I'll do that. And we don't say, I'm just going to compromise because I don't really like this situation anyway, so I might as well make the most of it. Might as well get the king's food while I'm here. And we don't throw up this big, huge God, you know, defense of saying, I, uh, we actually find a third way which says, you know what, I believe I can do this God's way and still succeed. That's not always the case. And as we read more in Daniel, we're going to discover that's not always the case. But sometimes it is the case. And the reason we don't know it is because we never, ever tried it. We've never said, God, here's my job. Can you move as powerfully in my job as you move in the church plant? And God say, oh, I'd love to. Because see, with me, with God, he's saying to you, there is no division between the sacred and the secular. It's just me in you, establishing the kingdom of God in the world. I love, and I've told this story, we're gonna end at the end of this chapter and pick up Daniel a little bit next week, but I love the story of George Washington Carver. I've, I've mentioned it many times, you've probably heard me say, but if you don't know it, he's worth reading about. His biography is one of the best books I've ever read, read period, in my life. And George Washington Carver grew up <clears throat> poor, uh, in slave family, uh, just very disadvantaged circumstances, was first person and by a long shot to go to school and his family, first university he went to, qualified, got there, they found out he's a black man and they said, oh, we didn't know you were black, you can't go to school here. Uh, went through some other steps and circumstances in life, ended up going to another school, getting a degree, graduating, uh, ended up at Tuskegee Institute. He was a botanist, he was an agricultural mind, he was an artist, uh, he was a Bible teacher, and the story unfolds like this, as George Washington Carver told it, that he went out in the woods one morning to have his devotions with God. And so he'd gone out in the woods and he would sit on this stump in the woods and he would just meet with the Lord. And as he tells it, on one morning he sat with God and he said, dear God, could you just tell me how you made the universe? Now this is Carver's mind. You'd have to understand him to know that he really was asking the question. He really did want to know. And he felt the Lord saying back to him, you know, George, I can't tell you how I made the universe. Your brain's not big enough to hold all that. And he's like, okay, well, you just tell me how you made a man. And God said, George, I can't tell you how you made a man. It's just too much. Your brain couldn't contain it if I told you how I made a man. And so frustrated, Carver says to God, okay, then, well, just tell me how you made a peanut then. Now, peanut at the time, but we live in Georgia, right? So we understand peanuts. But a peanut at the time was a, a goober pea, and, and, and it was like a, the black sheep of the agricultural world. Cotton was king, and a peanut was nothing. And therefore, the joke. Okay, then, well, just tell me how you made a peanut. George Carver went into something like a 48-hour trance. 
He said something came over him. He did not understand. He left the woods. He went to his lab. He didn't eat or sleep for two straight days. In his very makeshift laboratory at Tuskegee Institute, he started breaking open the secrets of a peanut. And check this out. In the end of time, in the end of George Carver's life, he had over 300 individual patents on products that are made of and produced by and constituted of peanuts, 320-something patents on peanuts. And the boll weevil came and wiped out the cotton crop in the United States Southern, and people, the whole economy was going down the tubes, and Carver steps up and goes, I got news for you. I got a peanut, and you can do a lot of things with peanuts. You can make paint with peanuts. You can make any kind of food products you want with peanuts. You can make milk out of peanuts. You can do incredible things with peanuts. And he actually had Congress come down to Tuskegee, sit in a room. He served them a meal entirely made out of peanut products at the end of which they said, this is the best meal we've ever had. He said, congratulations, you all ate peanuts. Everything I serve you today was peanuts. A tariff was passed. Peanuts became the thing. An economy was saved because a guy sat in the woods and said to God, can you help me with a peanut? And God said, I can help you with a peanut. God was saying, I know a lot about peanuts, brother. I'm like, well, I don't think God knows anything about derivatives. I'm sure he doesn't. Don't ask him. It's too much for him to handle. It's over his head. God doesn't know anything about mechanics. He doesn't know about engineering. God wouldn't be interested in my company. We sell pinwheels. Have you ever asked him? Have you ever said, God, you know what? I'd really like to lead with excellence. I'd love to back it up with character. I'd love to have all that undergirded by faith. I'd like to be a leader in our industry, not for selfish gain, but for your name. God, can you teach me about or to say to your boss, yes, I'm a Christian, and yes, I know I needed to go on that mission project, we're going to Guatemala. But I just want to say this to you. If you'll say yes to me going to Guatemala for eight days and you'll give me 45 days, then I want you to evaluate whether that was an okay decision for you to make about me going to Guatemala or not. And then you go back and close the door in your closet and say, dear God, I put your name on the line for the Guatemala trip because I felt like you burned that in my heart. And I put your name on the line at our company. And so I'm available and I'm asking you to pour into my thinking, my imagination, my, my determination, my discipline, my ability so that I can do more for you. Because my name's not on the line. Your name is on the line. At the end of the conversation, the official wasn't going to say, Daniel's diet doesn't work. At the end of the conversation, the official was going to say, Daniel's God doesn't work. And God was just waiting to come swooping in. Where? Into Babylon. Isn't that awesome? Not swooping into 515. 
God was waiting to come swooping into Babylon, the city of the gods, the gateway of the gods. And he said, if you got an Ishtar gate that leads to the gateway of the gods, then for crying out loud, the God of gods ought to come through that gate. And I'm gonna do it through the boys of Babylon because they've got unusual confidence and courage in me in spite of the odds. You know, the way the New Testament says it is this. It says, and whatever you do in word or deed, Colossians 3, 17, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It says, do your work excellent as unto the Lord and not unto men, for from the Lord you receive your reward. And that's a whole new way to win the city and to win the world.